It's time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. The Tom Sumner Program. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. Our theme music is Fruit of the Louvre, provided by flick composer-producer Howard Eddy. Stay tuned, because it's on now. Old-fashioned radio for a new generation. The Tom Sumner Program. Have you lost your job and your health care coverage due to COVID-19? You're not alone, and Genesee Health Plan can help. I called, and they provided health care enrollment over the phone with Medicaid, HealthCare.gov, and Genesee Health Plan. They made sure I had access to doctor visits, my prescriptions, and more. Getting health care coverage can be confusing. You don't have to do it alone. Get help with GHP. Call 844-232-7740 or go to GeneseeHealthPlan.org. We're in this together, and together we'll get through it. Hi, I'm U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow, and I'm listening to the Tom Sumner Show. And welcome back, everybody. This is the Tom Sumner Program. Uh, my my guest uh, this hour has been on the show before, but he has a new book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. And I don't think the answer is Russians, but but we'll find out in just a minute as we talk with uh, progressive national and internationally syndicated talk show host Tom Hartman. Tom, welcome back to the show. It's good to talk to you again. It's great to be here with you. Thank you, Tom. Um, let's let's talk about this war on the vote because I talk about people who don't participate and and how pitiful the turnout is on a fairly regular basis. And I've I chalk it up to apathy. Um, well, it could be. I, you know, I think that there's a, a pervasive sense in America that the system is rigged. I think that was uh, probably one of the messages that uh, Donald Trump delivered uh, three and a half years ago that most resonated with voters. And um, you know, and you'll find a similar sentiment uh, on the Bernie Sanders side of the Democratic Party. And, um, you know, what difference does my vote make? And the simple reality is that with the Electoral College system, there's really only about a half a dozen states, uh, maybe in this election cycle it might be as large as eight, but um, where, you know, your vote really does make a difference. And in most states, at least for president, in most states your vote doesn't. Uh, Your vote has a huge difference in local elections and state-level elections and and uh, our county elections, and even in state-level elections, including federal elections like the Senate and the House. But um, th- those those elections don't get the coverage or the, um, you know, they're not pay- paid attention to by the media the way that the, the presidential election is. And so, uh, you know, I think all of that contributes to it. I think the other part of it, though, is that for, uh, m- you know, much of the history of the United States, the, the instrument of government, the mechanism of government, has been used to aggressively prevent people from voting rather than aggressively promote voting. And uh, that is a, a system that has become institutionalized since the 1960s in the United States uh, ac- 
across the board and, of course, was institutionalized after the Civil War, um, aggressively uh, directed against people of color. One of the things that, that troubles me is our, our local elections here in in uh, Flint, where this radio show is based in Flint, Michigan, We'll have a we'll have an election, especially primary primary elections and special elections, <laughs> where we have single digit turnout. Michigan has a system, Tom. I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it because I was looking at some of the statistics from your book, talking about, uh, like for example, Donald Trump getting elected with 26 percent of the vote. Um, but in Michigan. People are largely registered because our Secretary of State's office, every time you go to renew a license plate or a driver's license or any other transaction with the Secretary of State's office, they encourage people to update and keep updated their voter registration. So we have a pretty pretty good system where largely the eligible voters in Michigan are registered. Now, do they vote? Well, apparently not, if in Flint we're having single-digit turnout. Yeah. Well, and that's a, that's a crisis of democracy, uh, Tom. It's, you know, when people don't feel... This is a symptom, not a cause. When, when people don't feel that uh, their vote matters, whether it's that they don't think that it matters, um, you know, they don't think that their vote is going to be countered or, or they think that the results are already preordained, or alternatively, they think that it doesn't matter who gets in, they're still going to get screwed, which has been a, a growing sentiment since the early 1980s in the United States. Since um, then, you know, why why take a day off work? Why lose a half a day or a day's worth of pay? Um, you know, why go to the trouble? Why stand in line? You know, the whole thing's a pain in the ass. Why do it? And, um, you know, it's a real tragedy, but. You know, the simple fact of the matter is that I think for most Americans now, in 1980, we had a, or 1981, the United States experienced a massive shift. From 1933 until 1981, we were operating under an economic system known as Keynesian economics. And what that meant was that during that period of time, during that, uh, you know, 50 years or so, half a century or so, as uh, CEO pay went up, worker pay went up actually faster. As corporate profits went up, worker pay actually went up faster. As the rich grew in number and wealth, the wealth and the number of people solidly in the middle class went up dramatically faster. We went from uh, about a third of us being in the middle class in the, in the 1930s, uh, arguably fewer than that at the depth of the Depression, to uh, over 60% in 1980. Um, last year, that dropped down to 48% of Americans now qualify to be considered in the middle class. And that flip, we moved out of Keynesian economics and we moved back to what's referred to nowadays as neoliberal economics. Uh, they, we called it you know, Reaganism or trickle-down economics or whatever you want to call it. But it, it wasn't anything <laughs> new. It was, George H.W. Bush. George H.W. Bush called it voodoo economics. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and and this, this was the economic system that we had in the United States from 1920 to 1929 or 1932. 
and it, it brought about the great crash. And, and, it, and it, back then, it wiped out the middle class, too. People think the Roaring Twenties were roaring for everybody. No, they were roaring for the very, very, very wealthy. And um, so when Reagan moved us into this different economic era, all of that growth of the middle class came to a screeching halt. Productivity continued to increase. Corporate profits have exploded. Uh, CEO pay has gone up thousands of, of percent uh, in some industries. And uh, the, the rich have gotten, I mean, there's been about a 7 or $8 trillion transfer of wealth to the rich from the pockets of working class people since 1981. And so, you know, this is very rarely talked about in the media. But, you know, it's not much in dispute. And so people don't realize why. You know, why is it that I can't get ahead? Why is it that I'm carrying $20,000 of the credit card debt just to stay, just to maintain a, you know, a lifestyle that my parents easily uh, handled in the 1950s and 60s and 70s without any debt at all? Why is it that my kids are thirty, forty, fifty thousand $50,000 in debt and when they graduate from college, they're not going to be able to buy a house or get married or have kids for at least 10 or 15, maybe even 20 years because of this college debt. Why is it that, that uh, back, you know, I remember 1973, I had a company in Michigan. I grew up in Lansing. Um, I had a company in Okemos, Michigan, and we had 18 employees and a little herbal tea factory. And I, I, as the owner of the company, I was writing the checks. I was paying $35 a month, the Blue Cross Blue Shield, for each one of my employees for full comprehensive health insurance. That, at that time, Ingham Medical, the county hospital in Lansing, St. Lawrence, the Catholic hospital, and Sparrow, the, the, it was started by a philanthropist. They were all nonprofit. The health insurance companies, by law, were required to be nonprofit back in the 70s. Um, you know, Reagan led the way in changing all those laws, and, and a lot of states jumped into the act. And now, now people can't even afford to go to the doctor because they can't afford the co-pays or the deductibles. And people don't understand that there, this is not an accident. There has been a systematic stripping of the middle class over the last 40, 50 years, large, largely the last 40 years since 1981. It has been intentional. It has been methodical. It has been, uh, and it is justified by a media infrastructure um, that, that ranges from Fox News to, to think tanks like the Cato Institute and Heritage. Um, it's backed up by a judicial structure. And it's continuing to roll along, and, and, and it basically tells everybody, oh, but, you know, you don't want socialism. You don't want free health care. You don't want free college, even though, you know, our parents had cheap health care and basically free college. You know, I, I, I went to college. I didn't graduate, but when I went to college, I paid my tuition working part-time at a gas station and as a, as a dishwasher at Bob's Big Boy, and that was Michigan State University. Um, you know, <laughs> nowadays, no chance. I th and I think I know the uh, the big boy that you worked at. Yeah, in Trowbridge Road, right there. That's right. <laughs> Trowbridge and Harrison. <laughs> and, the, and, the F and the Exxon station, there was an Esso station back then, right across the street. It's where I was changing tires and pumping gas. I lived right around the corner from there. But you would think, especially in the era of <laughs> how uh, of, of uh, Citizens United and, and big money in elections, that that would make people want to vote more because that seems to be the only thing that they can do. Yeah, well, you know, if you believe that your vote will have an impact, then yeah. But I think that people are just beat down. 
Uh, you know, no matter no matter who's in charge, whether it's a Republican or a Democrat, you know, Bill Clinton didn't challenge Reaganomics. He doubled down on it. He 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 uh, privatized, you know, the, the, he uh, privatized is the wrong word. He he deregulated the the media. So you went from Clear Channel owning twenty or thirty stations to owning a thousand stations and putting you know Rush Limbaugh on, on most of them. Um, you, you, he he uh, block granted all of the social welfare programs so that nobody could be on you know social welfare programs for more than five years. Uh, that you know that sounds good when the economy is really rip roaring along, but when you hit a dip, particularly a long dip, or you know or his third policy, you know NAFTA, which was actually you know negotiated with Reagan and Bush and George W. Bush, NAFTA was George Herbert Walker Bush's baby, but. Clinton enthusiastically campaigned on it and, and signed it and put it into law, and and literally fifty thousand factories left America over the next twenty years. Fifty thousand factories, and and you know, people look at that and they go, okay, the Democrats screwed me, the Republicans screwed me. Why should I go vote? You know, I, I still can't help, and and I raise this issue from time to time wondering why people don't embrace uh, independence and third-party candidates more because of that that sense well, it's that they can't win they can't, right. they, it, it, it's because you know when you you know in, in 2000 when i voted for ralph nader i did so because i lived in vermont and i knew that and my wife voted for al gore we split our vote but i you know i wanted ralph to have a you know a good feeling because i knew that vermont was going to go for al gore it didn't matter um but you know i i, I had I lived in a swing state, if I lived in Florida, my vote for Ralph Nader would have been a vote for George W. Bush. And uh, what we have to do, what you know, if, if we want to have a vibrant democracy and if we want to have an economy that works for working people rather than just the plutocrats, the billionaires like Donald Trump, uh, who right after his tax cut was passed, flew down to Mar-a-Lago and met with a bunch of the people at the, his club where it's $200,000 just to get in the door and said, I just made you a whole lot richer. If we if we want to have an economy that works for people like you and me instead of people like Donald Trump and his friends at Mar-a-Lago, we've got to take over the Democratic Party. You're not going to succeed taking over the Republican Party. They sold out in 1978, um, you know, after the, the Buckley and, and First National Bank decisions from the Supreme Court made it legal for politicians to sell themselves to corporations and billionaires. The, the Democratic Party at that point was still largely funded by unions and and so they didn't they didn't go down that road and the democrat democratic party it seems to me is starting to come back i think that the campaigns of bernie sanders and elizabeth warren and even the rhetoric of the so-called centrists i mean everybody's now talking about well yeah medicare for everybody who wants it that is far more radical than anything barack obama even considered so you know for example so i think that there is a way out of this, but and and you know the country does go back and forth, you know, from from extreme uh, libertarian slash conservative uh, slash oligarchic governance to to uh, more you know democratic capital D democratic uh, you know union uh, worker government. Um, we see these swings; they tend to run in roughly fifty-year cycles. More with New York Times best-selling author. And radio show host Tom Hartman straight. Up. 
Hello out there, everybody. It's me, Tigger. T-I-Double-G-R. That spells Tigger. And don't forget to remember to listen to Tom Sumner program on account of because he's so bouncy. <laughs> I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Our lives have been turned upside down by COVID-19. When a vaccine becomes available, it's critical that all of us get it. What we do as individuals will impact everyone's health, including those who can't get the vaccine. We won't get through this unless everyone takes part. Now is the time to get up to date on all recommended vaccines for both kids and adults. Experts say it's more important than ever for everyone to get their flu vaccine this year. And if you're older, you should get both the flu and pneumonia vaccines, since both illnesses can make COVID-19 even worse. Vaccines are available at a lot of convenient places, so be an example for friends and loved ones and encourage them to get vaccinated too. We all want to reunite, travel, and get back to school and work. But that means we all need to get on board. This is the time to do what's right for each other. Get vaccinated. It's our best shot. Hey, this is Tom from the Tom Sumner Program. Catch me and a gaggle of great guests weekdays on Our Voices Radio, WFOVLP 92.1 FM. You never know who might drop by. Joe Biden from the Blue Hawaiian. Dan Serling. Congressman Dan Kildee. Alexander Zondrick. Actor, comedian Joe Napote. Woodrow Stanley. U.S. Senator Debbie Stabenow. State Senator Jim Annan. Comedian Brian McCree. The unknown comic. Mark Farner. And Tom, I want you to know Tom's my friend. You are, you've always got great questions and you know the material and you, and you care about it and it's, uh, it's, that's impressive. Nice to be with you, Tom. And I admire you for reading all of that. I haven't read the whole thing. I've got willing to admit that. <laughs> hey, Tom, this is my favorite interview all It's like having coffee at the kitchen table with you. Tune in Monday through Friday from 9 to 12 right here on 92.1 of a Kind. And check out our website at TomSumnerProgram.com. MTA Flint is nationally recognized for continually seeking to provide sustainable, reliable, and cost-efficient transportation for individuals throughout the region. Through work-related and non-emergency medical transportation and your ride services, MTA is moving people with future and alternative fuel technologies. More information about MTA Flint and specialized services is available at mtaflint.org. Discoveries. They happen when we least expect them in places we thought we knew. And discoveries have a way of teaching us a little more about ourselves along the way. Welcome to Flint and Genesee County, where up north meets down south. Home to Michigan's largest county park system and a vibrant culture. A place filled with discoveries we've yet to make. Throughout acres of beautiful lakes, wetlands, and woods, and in the diverse city beyond. Where the uplifting melodies of gospel choirs fill the air where the work of renowned artists color the galleries and museums, where the fresh fruits and vegetables at the downtown farmer's market awaken our senses. 
and where the cultural center and planetarium broaden our view of the world. Let's spend a few days enjoying the wonders of Flint and Genesee County, where the joy of discovery is pure Michigan. Your trip begins at michigan.org. This is Congressman Dan Kildee, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with New York Times bestselling author and radio show host Tom Hartman straight ahead. And, uh, you know, and I think, frankly, we're in one of those swings right now. And, and that's one of the reasons why Donald Trump is in the White House. Look at what he campaigned on. He campaigned on blowing up the trade deals that Bill Clinton championed. He, it was also the trade deals that Ronald Reagan and George Herbert Walker Bush negotiated and championed. So he, he basically was he took the Bernie Sanders share of Brown position. Right. He he you know, even Debbie Stabenow was in favor of this stuff, you know. And but, you know, so Trump was to the left of everybody in half the people in the Democratic Party, everybody in the Republican Party with regard to trade. He said that I'm not going to cut your Social Security or your Medicare. I'm going to protect them. Again, he was to the left of not only everybody in the Republican Party, but about half his Democratic Party. Obama had been willing to chain uh, the uh, cost of living adjustments for for Social Security, which was effectively about a half a percent per year cut over a couple of decades. Um, he was stopped from doing that by public outrage, but, you know, he was willing to do it. He was ready to do it. Uh, Trump campaigned on, I'm going to bring the jobs back home. I'm going to you know, blow up these trade deals. I guess I already mentioned that. He said, I'm going to raise taxes on the rich. He said, boy, am I going to take a bath, you know, in my administration? Well, obviously, he didn't do that. He, 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 his tax cuts were worth millions, tens of millions of dollars to him, perhaps hundreds of millions of dollars. So Trump lied through his teeth, but he said the right thing. And people said, OK, we'll give you a chance. You're coming in as the outsider. You want to blow the system up. We'll try it. See, I think, Tom, the, the, the election this year is not about Democrats versus Republicans. It's not about left versus right. It's not about socialism versus capitalism. Those are all the labels that, that the media likes to use because they're simple shorthand for basically meaningless my team, your team BS. That, it's all that, bumper sticker that, stuff. Yeah, exactly. It fills the airwaves. What's what has been going on in this country electorally, I would say, by and large, since the 1992 election, is that Americans are wanting somebody who's going to blow up the system. They know the system is corrupt. They don't realize it's a system that Ronald Reagan gave them and the Republicans in 1981. They don't understand how it all works and how it all got put in place. But they know it's corrupt. They know it's not working for them. They know it's not helping them. And so in 92, Bill Clinton campaigned around the country with a speech called the New Covenant speech, which was ripped straight out of FDR. You know, we're going to build infrastructure. We're going to build housing. We're going to build hospitals. We're going to build schools. We're going to we're going to increase unionization at that point in time. We're going to build a wall. <laughs> no, right. no, I mean, Clinton, Clinton, Clinton campaigned as FDR, but he didn't govern as FDR. He governed as Eisenhower, you know, uh, or, or, or he, actually he governed to the right of Eisenhower. Um, he governed as, as Ronald Reagan light. And, and, you know, I already ranted about that. So then people said, okay, enough of this already. And, and cause Al Gore came along and said, Oh, I'll just do the same thing Bill Clinton did. And people were like, no, thanks. And then George W. Bush and Dick Cheney lied us into a couple of wars and screwed us and gave more tax breaks to the rich people. And so people were like, yeah, you know, give us some, some change. We want some friggin' change here. We don't want the status quo anymore. And so Obama comes along and says, Hey, I'm the candidate of hope and change. And everybody's like, okay, we'll give you a shot at it. And he couldn't get anything done. 
Uh, you know, the, the Affordable Care Act was a nice small start, but it was still based on a for-profit insurance system. It's still, you know, costing half, you know, twice as much as Canada um, for, for poor uh, health outcomes. And so, you know, Obama was kind of a placeholder for eight years in some regards. And you can blame a lot of that on Mitch McConnell, but nonetheless. And so well, I blame a lot of that. Says, I'm going to blow it up. I blame a lot of that on uh, Lieberman. Well, to... Lieberman was one vote in the Senate. He was he was the guy who who said that if you put uh, uh, a public option into this program, I won't vote for it. He was the reason why they pulled the public option out. But um, you know, he, he was Joe Lieberman was a as was the case as was Clinton was a guy who danced to the tune of the lobbyists and the big corporations. And the very wealthy people. Well, in Lieberman's case, especially uh, healthcare companies. Yeah, yeah. The insurance you know, companies. insurance companies in Connecticut. Yeah, and the drug companies. And and so, you know, basically what the, the simple reality is that the Democratic Party, as I said earlier, had been the party of the, of the working class up until 92. And and what happened was Reagan, Reagan was very, very, uh, I'm not sure that Reagan was very smart, but the people running Reagan's program were very smart, and they knew that the principal funder of the Democratic Party were, were the unions. And if you want to take down the Democratic Party, you take down organized labor. When Reagan came into office, a third of America was unionized. And, you know, if, what was the, one of the first things he did? He, he, he shut down one of only two unions that actually endorsed him in the election, PATCO, and, and fired all the, you know, all 15,000 air traffic controllers and said, okay, take that. And in doing that, by the way, he was simply imitating what Maggie Thatcher had done two years earlier in 78 in the UK with the coal miners union, which was the strongest union in the United Kingdom. Nobody thought she could take them on. She took them on and she broke that union. And so what over the next 12 years, what Reagan and Bush did is they stripped American working people, at least in the private sector, uh, you know, working for companies, for businesses, as opposed to working for government, stripped them of their union rights and stripped their unions of much of their political power. And the result of that was that by 1992, it became obvious to Al Fromm and Bill Clinton when, in 91 when they started the Democratic Leadership Council that there's no way we can win an election anymore with just money from the unions. There's not enough money. And so we got to go someplace else. And so they figured, okay, well, the Republicans are taking money from tobacco and from steel and from oil and, and from all these dirty industries. There's a lot of clean industries out there, and Clinton sold this whole thing in, in the early 90s. He particularly was selling it in his re-election in 96 of, you know, blue-collar jobs of the past, white-collar jobs of the future. And so we need to get our kids in college, and we need to be learning teaching coding, and, and just stop worrying about unions. You don't need a friggin' union. All you need to do is just get a good education. And that was the sales pitch. And it was, a, you know, tragically, there, there was only a, a tiny shred of truth to it. And the result is now that only 6% of Americans in the private sector are members of unions any longer. And those unions have probably less than a third of the political power and vitality that they had in 1981. So, but from 1992, when Reagan or when uh, Clinton uh, threw in with the corporations and the billionaires in order to get elected, and which he did, uh, from that point until the end of the Obama administration, because Obama did the same thing. He was taking money from lobbyists and had lobbyists running his campaign and had billionaires funding it and was showing up in wine caves and stuff. Um, during that <laughs> period of time, the Democratic Party was viewed by the electorate as just as corrupt or nearly as corrupt as the Republican Party, and there was a hell of a lot of truth to that. 
And now what we're seeing is the is the, the base of the Democratic Party shifting back and saying, no, we want to go back to Lyndon Johnson with the Great Society, one of the most radical changes in American history, the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act, the enfranchisement of tens of millions of Americans of color, the Great Society. He created Medicare from scratch. I mean, you think right now they're saying, oh, you can't afford Medicare for all. You should look back at the debates that they were having in 19, in 1967 about, you know, we can't afford Medicare at all. You know, like, Medicare, what are you talking about? And that never and, would have happened if if Johnson hadn't had the skill set he had, especially uh, with uh, Congress and with uh, it was, yeah, senators. It was, it was two things. Number one, he had been the leader of the Senate. He had been the Mitch McConnell of his day only on the Democratic side. And so he knew how to use power. He knew really, really, very well how to use power, number one. And and number two, when Jack Kennedy was assassinated, there was this explosion of goodwill that right. that LBJ kind of rode like a surfer on a wave for the next three or four years. And that's how, you know, he got the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act passed by saying, do this for Jack. I mean, verbatim, do this for it, yeah, Jack. Yeah, exactly. Finish Jack's legacy. Let me help me finish Jack's legacy. That's how he got elected in '64, and and uh, yeah, I mean, it was, and he rode it was that a, wave right into time. and he rode that wave right into the Bay of Tonkin. Yeah, tragically. I mean, that was I was out protesting LBJ. I hated him at the time because he wanted to send me to Vietnam to to kill me. You know, um, but when you look back at his accomplishments, his social domestic accomplishments, he was one of our greatest presidents. And and that's what's troubling now about this fascination with uh, uh, people like Donald Trump and and even uh, the the faint surging of uh, Andrew Yang and Tom Steyer. Um, this this idea that you have to get an outsider in there to fix everything, and avoiding the people who might actually know how to fix things. It seems, and we'll see how Bloomberg plays out this wild card thing. I, you know, Steyer's not a factor. He's he's a vanity candidate. Everybody gets it. And he's starting to get it probably. Um, Andrew Yang, you know, nice guy. He's got a nice shtick. Uh, he's having his moment in the sun, but he never was a serious candidate for president. I was surprised he made. I was surprised he got into the debates. Well, he's 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 a tech guy. He has a really good online operation. Um, but that's not going to, you know, that's not going to push him over the town. But, I mean, but, the battle right now is a battle for the soul of the Democratic Party. Town. But but let's talk about the impact of these things on voting, because there have been some initiatives, one here in Michigan uh, called uh, uh, Voters Not Politicians, that did a grassroots uh, thing to uh, try to set up an independent commission to draw district lines. And mm-hmm. and they're going to get their first crack at that here pretty soon as we roll into this yeah. uh, um, uh, census year. Um, yeah, and, California and, did that statewide, and it, and it really cleaned up politics in that state. And and there are some other initiatives around the country. I'm just more familiar with that particular one. Are these initiatives? Um, you mentioned Californian uh, Californians uh, were pretty effective. Are these things going to be effective at getting people back out to the polls? I think so. 
you know, it, it, it depends on the individual initiatives that you're talking about. But when you when you look at uh, what happened in California, uh, when they started redrawing districts so that they were competitive, they also went to a top two primary system, which was interesting. But basically what they did is they gave more power to the voters. And now you see more diversity in the vote in California. And yeah, large chunks of the state are you know, solidly blue, but um, there are still battles within the, that blue area that, that are, you know, that are representative. And California isn't the only state. I'm sorry, I don't have a list in front of me of the states that have adopted uh, nonpartisan commission uh, redistricting as opposed to political redistricting. But it's, it's a growing trend, and it's a good one. It's an important trend because it gives people a sense that their democracy isn't in the hands of, you know, uh, political bosses and smoke-filled back rooms. Well, we had a, a all of, all of the years that I was growing up in uh, Genesee County in Michigan, because of the auto industry and the large number of UAW workers, um, it, Genesee County was largely Democratic. I, I, I mean, you couldn't get elected dog catcher if you were a Republican in Genesee <laughs> County, and. Um, and then what happened is, once the primary was over, the election was over. And people don't vote in as big a numbers in the primaries as they do in the general. And it, there, there was, you know, this sense that it was all over by primary day. Well, that started taking over all over the state as districts started being redrawn to be one party or another. Right. Right. And that's and that's what happens. And, uh, you know, and, and then you end up with basically all the people from one party coming out to vote to fight it out in the primary. And then and then the, the general election becomes a pro forma thing where, you know, the old loyalists and people like you and me who feel that we have an obligation to our to our democracy and to, you know, all these generations of people who fought and died for this country to show up and exercise the franchise that people fought and died for, um, you know, who will vote and but, you know, people feel, feel disenfranchised. Is it time to rethink the Electoral College? I, I always, oh, it's time to get rid of it. I struggle with Electoral <laughs> College math. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, it, it, and, I, and I've heard really two schools of thought about the Electoral College, aside from, you know, the people who say get rid of it. Um, one is that it, you know, was was created so that small states would still have some representation. And the other was that the uh, founders were as afraid of voters as they were a monarchy. Yeah, neither of those really stand up to scrutiny. Um, what happened was, and you can read this in the, in the notes, Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia, most of this happened in the second and third week of July in 1787. Um, was there was a, a debate about how to select the president, and the concern that people had. They had no doubt that in individual states, if a scoundrel was running for governor, the word would spread and people would know who the you know who the candidates for governor were or for Congress, you know, or the Senate. But we were at that point in time, if not the largest country in the Western world, physically, geographically, um, one of the largest. And I think we were the largest. I, I, I 
I'm pretty sure, you know, all the European countries were, you know, a lot of the European countries would fit inside Massachusetts, you know, so, or inside Virginia or Georgia. And so the problem was in a day when, you know, it would take three days to get a newspaper from one of the, you know, from, from Massachusetts to, to Georgia. Uh, and nobody had the ability to really travel around the country and get to know the candidates. How do we make sure that we don't end up with somebody in office as president, which is a very, very important and powerful position, who is not fit for the office? Um, one of the guys, I think it was George Mason, talked to him. He said, you know, what if the, what if the candidate is a drunkard? Um, and, so, and, and so what they came up with was a system that kind of swung, like a door kind of swung both ways. Um, it, on the one hand, each... Uh, state or each uh, locality within the states would elect each congressional district would elect their own representatives to vote for president. And those representatives, they're called electors, would be members of this group of representatives called the Electoral College. And in the Constitution, it says they may not be elected officials. They can never have run for any political office. So these are people who don't have an axe to grind and they're not, they don't have a, a dog in the fight. So they're like, you know, today they're totally obscure. Nobody knows who these people are. But so but they would be people that you could trust. They were the, the wise elders of the community. You know, you would elect somebody to be your elector who you trusted. And then the electors would literally go up to Washington, D.C., or at the founding of the Republic, the capitals of the country was in New York City. So they would go up to up to, you know, the Capitol and they would interview the, the people running for for president. And they'd spend some time there and they'd get to know them. And while they may have carried a vote from their state, I mean, Georgia might have voted for Thomas Jefferson in, in, 18, in the election of 1800. Uh, when the electors got up to up to D.C. and they met him, they might have said, well, you know, this guy's a drunkard. And so I'm not going to vote for him. And so in the Constitution, it says, A, you vote for the elector, not for the president. But B, the elector doesn't have to vote for the guy that you told him you wanted him to vote for. He can make an independent decision. So it was really a safety valve system. It was a mechanism to protect us from having a, a, a person running the country who was unfit for public office. And, and I would argue that for the first 50, 60, 80 years, something in there, it probably served the country fairly well. Um, although, the, you know, and, and there weren't any you know, great battles around it. But, you know, it wasn't a terrible thing. But now it's just an anachronism. It's, it's a, it, it, there's absolutely no reason for it. Uh, the simple concept of democracy is majority rules, uh, you know, uh, you know, in a republic where minorities are protected, but the majority rules. And so, you know, if, if Hillary Clinton got three million more votes than Donald Trump, and she did, she should have been president. If Al Gore got a half million more votes than George W. Bush, and he did, he should have been president. I mean, it's just, I think it's just that simple. And there's a, a movement now, it's called the National Popular Vote Movement, nationalpopularvote.com is the website, uh, where uh, states are signing on to this interstate compact, this contract between states, that because electors don't have to vote for the person that their state voted for, because of that, you know, out in the, in the Constitution, um, the states can tell their electors to vote for whoever they want to, and the, and the electors typically have to do, or they don't have to do that, but typically do that. So what this... You know, it takes 290 electoral votes to elect a president. So right now, the number of states that have signed on to this, and there's some big ones like California and New York, um, 
But the number of states that have signed on to this so far represent 170 electoral votes. When they hit 290 electoral votes, at that point, every one of those states is committing to directing their electors to vote for whoever won the national vote. So if this was in place in the last election, when Hillary Clinton won the national vote, the electors in enough states to control 290 electoral votes, so there was enough, enough electors to make somebody president, would have gone for Hillary Clinton, regardless of how the people in those states voted, because the majority of Americans had voted for Hillary Clinton. And, and this is a very sensible thing. The, the, the principal opposition to it is coming out of the Republican Party. The states that have not signed on to this so far are almost all Republican-controlled states. That's Because um... that party has won two elections in the last 15, 20 years uh, where they lost the majority of the vote. And they want to keep, keep it that way. Thank you very much. Do you think abolishing the uh, Electoral College will have a significant impact on... Uh people learning to have some trust in their vote? I think if Al Gore had been president, that we would not be in two stupid long-term wars and uh, labor rights wouldn't have been slashed and we wouldn't have three or four trillion dollars of our budget deficit because tax breaks were given to rich people and corporations. I think if Hillary Clinton had got elected that um, we would not have I don't know, even know where to start on everything that's, <laughs> that's happened in the last three years. But we would not be the laughing stock of the world, and we would not be teetering on the edge of a war with Iran, um, and possibly even North Korea, God only knows. Um, yeah, I think that uh, I, I actually agree with the, the argument that was made by a number of the founders. Franklin was one of the more articulate, that there is a wisdom to crowds that you know there can be a there can be a threat to them too he talked about you know the danger of mob violence but there is if you get a lot a large enough group of people and you give them clean information they will typically make the right decision and i think they made the right decision in 2000 when the majority of americans voted for al gore and i think they made the right decision in 2016 when the majority of americans voted for hillary clinton and and uh, you know the republican party just wants to make sure it doesn't matter who people vote for they're going to get who they want in. How was Donald Trump able to, um, it, it just this is off topic a little bit, but how was he able to gain control of the Republican Party? Um, the, the classic way that, that autocrats always do, you reward your friends and you punish your enemies and you do so with neither fear nor favor. You do so with absolute um an absolute iron fist, no, no matter how close your, your enemies may have been to you, um, no matter how much you may owe them, you stab them in the back the minute that they waver away from the line. You don't just you know, reward good deeds. It's, it's individuals. You are either with you, they are either with you or they are against you. There is no middle ground. There is no compromise. It's my way or the highway. Um, this is something that uh, being played out this way, we have it, to the best of my knowledge, literally never seen in the United States. It's the way the government's run in, in Egypt with LCC. It's the way the government's run in Turkey with Erdogan. It's the way the government's run in Hungary with Viktor Orban or in the Philippines with Duterte. It's what Jair Bolsonaro is trying to do right now in Brazil. 
we're seeing this wave of right-wing authoritarianism sweeping across the world, much like it did in the 1930s when it infected first Italy and then Spain and then Germany and then Japan and, and dozens of smaller countries. More with New York Times bestselling author and radio show host Tom Hartman straight ahead. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. While we've been staying safe at home, scientists have been on a journey. The destination, a COVID-19 vaccine. This journey began decades ago with research into other coronaviruses. Scientists built from there with months of research and development, cooperation with other experts worldwide, and clinical trials on tens of thousands of volunteers of diverse race, age, and health status. They arrived at a safe, effective vaccine, and hundreds of thousands in Michigan have already been vaccinated. But the next step is ours. We need to get the vaccine when we can, keep wearing masks correctly, and taking precautions until we reach our destination, freedom from COVID-19, and getting back to the lives we love. Discover the facts for yourself at michigan.gov slash COVID vaccine. A message from the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. Start your weekend early with the Tom Sumner Program every Friday live at 11. We turn the spotlight on the world of arts and entertainment featuring artists from music, TV, and the movies. Catch everything from the rich local talent pool in and around Flint and Genesee County to up-and-coming stars of stage and screen, plus legends from New York and Hollywood. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe By from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zonjic. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. Hey, this is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Start your weekend right. Go to 11 Fridays on the Tom Sumner Program. Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy, which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. Imagine a journey down a picturesque river. Imagine your Flint River, 142 miles of recreation, natural beauty, and precious resources. The Flint River is a vital resource that is available for all to use and enjoy. 
The river and its ecosystem provide unlimited recreational opportunities and natural beauty while supporting wildlife in a vibrant landscape. We all have a responsibility to protect and preserve this precious resource. Learn more at FlintRiver.org or call the Flint River Watershed Coalition at 810-767-6490. The Tom Summer Program.com Hey, this is First Ward City Councilman Eric Mays, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. More with New York Times bestselling author and radio show host Tom Hartman straight ahead. Can can um, we put the toothpaste back in the tube? In, in other words, no. can can voters um, in numbers stand up against big money politics? In theory, um, there are <laughs> some systemic or systematic, uh, well, systemic. Um, challenges to that that we really, really need to address. I, you know, I think probably the biggest one is is redshift. If we don't do something about redshift, um, we won't have a democracy. And explain explain that, that briefly. Sure. Um, in in the 2000 election down in Florida, this weird anomaly happened. Well, let me back up a little bit more. Back in the 1950s. Um, exit polling, which had been done since the 1800s, um, was basically, they started to turn it from, a, from an art into a science. It started getting larger samples and doing you know, larger numbers and things because it took a while to count votes. And the idea was, and this was being largely driven by the, uh, by the creation of television news, and particularly in the late 1950s. And the, the, the idea was if we could get a good enough idea of who won an election, we could report it to people even before the votes are all counted so we have a sense of what's going on. I mean, you know, the news people loved this. And it wasn't all that reliable in the 50s, but it was useful. Uh, in the 60s, it, was, um, it, it got a whole lot more reliable and to the point where you know, the elections of 68 and, and 70 and 72, they were calling winners based on exit polls. And by the 80s, it was, it was a science. Uh, you know, Warren Matofsky got quite famous and quite rich by fine-tuning this into a science, the Matofsky Edison, um, you know, exit-polling company. And he was kind of the founder of the modern kind of scientific version. And he did exit-polling like Warren Buffett did to the stock market. I figured he cracked the code. And that went all around the world. Exit polls, I lived in Germany back in the 80s, and, and in Germany, all the votes are cast by paper, by hand on paper. And they're counted by hand. Um, it's like jury duty. You get a notice in the in the mail from the government that says, uh, on this election, you have been chosen to be one of the people who counts the vote. And you get three days, and you get time off work by law, just like jury duty. And you go in and you count the vote. And um, But they call the election the night of the election. Well, how do they do that? With exit polls. It's where the person stands outside the polling place, and as people walk out, they say, who would you vote for? And then they write it down. And, you know, the election polls uh, all around the world are typically never more than a tenth or a half at the very most of a point off. They, they reflect what actually happened. In fact, uh, they're, they're used by the United Nations to certify elections as clean and fair. They're used by the Carter Center 
uh, to certify elections as clean and fair. When in uh, I forget which year it is. I'm going to have to look this up. I, I think it was like around 20. Uh, I, I shouldn't say. I, I, in the last decade or so, uh, there was an election in Ukraine. You may remember where the exit polls showed that the pro-democracy candidate won, but the actual vote total showed that the pro-Russia candidate won. And um, the pro-Russia candidate was installed, and people came into the streets, and they were all waving orange, which was the color of the pro-democracy party. And it was called the Orange Revolution. And they literally brought down their government, and they did it because the Carter Center and the United Nations had run the exit polls, and they said, the, the, the Orange Party won, you know, the, the, the good guy won. And we overturned an entire government because there was a few point difference between the exit polls and what actually, you know, and, and what, the, what the government reported as the actual vote total. So exit polls were just the, the gold standard and, and have been for years and years and still are all around the world. Just a couple, couple of months ago, a month or so ago, when Boris Johnson won the election in the United Kingdom, they called the election the night of the election. They didn't finish counting the votes for three days, remember? Yeah. I mean, but, but we knew who won because even though it was a fairly close election, I mean, they, they, they didn't quite call it for a day or so because it was so close. But still, they, they were like, okay, this is it, um, based on the exit polls. So this weird thing happened in Florida in 2000. Um, the exit polls showed that Al Gore won, and not just won, won by a big margin, by you know tens of thousands of votes. And the actual count, as compiled by the state, showed that George W. Bush won by 526 votes, as I recall. And this then, of course, triggered a recount. The state Supreme Court ordered a recount because that kind of an anomaly is something that you know, would bring down a government. <laughs> There's something wrong here. And as soon as the state Supreme Court ordered a recount, um, George W. Bush, his campaign, uh, sued at the Supreme Court. And in their lawsuit, in the Bush v. Gore lawsuit, they said that um, if, uh, if the count as ordered by the state Supreme Court is allowed to continue in the state of Florida, it will cause, I'm quoting from, from, the, from the filings, it will cause irreparable harm to complainant George W. Bush. In other words, he'll lose the election if they count, if they recount it. And so the Supreme Court put a stop to the recount, which, by the way, there's no provision for in the Constitution. This is a complete violation of the, ninth, of the Tenth Amendment, excuse me, and um, basically awarded the election to George W. Bush. So what happened with the red shift? What was the deal? Why was it that the election, the, the state Florida election, said that the, the red party, the Republicans, won by 500 votes when the exit polls showed that the Blue Party, the Democratic Party, won by tens of thousands of votes. Turned out that Jeb Bush, who was the governor of Florida about six months before the election, had told his Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, to get a list from his brother, George W. Bush, who was the candidate for president and also the governor of Texas, to get from his brother, George Bush, a list of all the felons in Texas. Now, you got to follow along with this for a second. African Americans, virtually all of their last names come from a very small number of people who all spoke English, from Scots, Irish, and English slaveholders in the South. So there's a relatively small pool of common African American names. Hispanics all come from, their names all come from a single language also. It's not English in this case, it's Spanish, but they all come from Spanish. 
So among Hispanic voters, the, num- the name pool is still very, very small. A lot of Gonzalez's and Rodriguez's, and, you know, you know what I'm talking sure. about. And, and, you know, 80% of all the Washingtons in the United States are black. So 60-some-odd percent of all the Johnsons in the United States are black. So, so on the other hand, for white people, you've got this extraordinary name diversity. I mean, you know, uh, you've got people from Scandinavia who speak those languages, who speak Norwegian and Swedish, and, and, and uh, you've got people from Holland with Dutch. You've got the Czechs. You've got the Slavs. You've got Russians. You've got Croatians. You've got Serbians. You've got... I mean, there's literally dozens of languages, and everyone produces completely different kinds of names. So there's a huge amount of name diversity among white people. So if you take a list of Texas felons who are about 60% black and Hispanic, and you compare that list of Texas felons with a list of Florida registered voters, all the registered voters in Florida, which is what Catherine Harris did, and, and what you're going to find is that there are a lot of Jimmy Johnsons in Texas and a lot of Jimmy Johnsons in Florida. They're black. We got a, you know a lot of uh, a right. lot of uh, James Washingtons in Texas and in, on Texas felon list and a lot of James Johnsons or Washingtons in Florida. And there, you got a lot of Hector, Hector Garcias in Texas and a lot of Hector Garcias in in Florida. But you don't have a lot of Stanislav Skolinskis in Texas, you know, and Florida. You know what I mean? You understand what I'm saying? I, yeah, so, I do. Tom, unfortunately, so, we are running right out of time. Okay. Uh, well, bottom, I'll summarize real quickly. Okay. Bottom line is that because of this, uh, Jeb Bush was able to claim that there were 80 or 90,000 African Americans in Florida who were also illegal uh, felons from Texas. And he threw them off the voting rolls. And that's why the discrepancy. And since 2000, the Republican Party has institutionalized these voting roll purges in state after state after state. State of Michigan just took 30,000 people off the voting rolls because they have names identical or similar to names that appear in Georgia's voting rolls. Brian Kemp gave the Secretary of State of Michigan that list. And, and they're using it to this day. Greg Powell's talked to him last week and he said they're aggressively purging the list. It's going to be almost exclusively that, black people. Well, the name of the book is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote, and How to Get It Back, from uh, best-selling author and radio show host Tom Hartman, my guest uh, this past hour. Tom, very quickly, I always give guests an opportunity to let listeners know where they can find out more. Do you have a website? Uh, TomHartman.com, however you spell it, will get you there. Uh, and uh, the books are available in you know, any place you find books. Well, Tom, thanks. This always happens. We get talking, and and we could talk for hours. Um, Thanks so much for spending this time with me. I appreciate it. My pleasure. Good talking to you, Tom. Take care. We'll have more of the Tom Sumner program straight ahead. Old-fashioned radio. For a new generation, thetomsumnerprogram.com. 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 From the top.
you pilots get off of my lawn? We're trying to do a radio show down here. It's a Tom Sumner program, don't you know? Go on. Go on, get out of here.